Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Coach Cottle's Corner. Today we've got part two of his interview with Coach Bill Tierney. Enjoy. So now let's go to recruiting. You know, there, there used to be the old saying, the joke, there's honor among thieves. Well, sure. now everybody's recruiting everybody and they're, uh, how does that for a guy who has been as stand up as anybody who's ever coached a game? How, what is your take on the recruiting right now? I'll be honest with you, Dave. I'm 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 disappointed in our profession right now, and and not because there aren't great coaches, not because there aren't great players. There's so many great coaches and so many great players, but I I think a lot is hand gone hand in hand with our society that. Once we say, um, once we find a reason to do something that's, you know, not honorable, which, which usually goes back to, well, it's not an NCAA rule. So if it's not an NCAA rule, it must be okay. And it started, I really believe it started those years when we were recruiting eighth and ninth graders. It was just, it was honestly, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing to me, to us as coaches. And I think to our sports, you know, we had young men in here who were closest, closer to elementary school than they were to college. And we were trying to talk them into making a decision on college. And so <clears throat> what happened was kids were committing in ninth grade and then they'd grow up a little bit or they, they, they realized that they only committed because they liked the school colors or because that's where mom went to school or dad went to school and they'd grow a little bit older and say, you know what? Uh, Maybe I don't want to go there anymore. And and um, when those kids made those decisions, it kind of opened the door for coaches to turn that around. Uh, I certainly was okay with that when they made those decisions. But when coaches started turning around saying and trying to influence young people, uh, even now we're allowed to recruit juniors, and you still have. I had a kid decommit from me the other day who has who has been committed to us for over a year. Because other coaches were telling them they had, they had, you know, better opportunities for them. Well, with, so you know, what I did as, as you know, as, as an old school coach said was, okay, then you're done here, and and they they didn't understand that. They they're like, well, no, we just want to explore our options. And and to me, that's so, it, it, it's a shame, you know. And now we've got guys, as I say to anybody, any of these coaches who will talk to me, we got guys who are making a living off poaching or off taking kids from other schools and, and not kids who have graduated like last year. That was, that was a whole different world, but now taking great pride in, uh, in, in taking other kids. And, and, you know, and as I say to coaches is we're selling our souls and our more importantly, our friendships with other coaches, as you know, we're in this profession for 20, 30, 40 years uh, with other coaches, but that kid who we just stole as a 17 year old, when he becomes 21 or 22 and he graduates, they're gone. You know, you, you have that special relationship, as you mentioned before, and I'm proud of that, but you know, some of those special relationships, but that, guess what, that coach you just poached from, he, he's, he's still around and there's memory of that and, and negative memories create, um, create, very shallow, very fake friendships, as uh, 
as you know, as, as, as my nephew Seth, who's the head coach at Hofstra, calls our convention now the masquerade ball. You know, everybody, everybody's <laughs> smiling. Everybody's smiling at each other. And then, you know, under the mask, they, they might not be saying nice things, you know. And it, it's just, it's, it's fine. It's fine. But, you know, one of the things I've been saying this summer since we've been get, able to get back on the road is I, I don't like getting old. You know, I just turned 70 a few days ago. I don't like getting old, but I don't want to be a 30-year-old in this profession if it keeps going down in in the route that it is right now. How has your recruiting changed from Princeton to Denver? It's funny. We had at Princeton what we knew was that when we when we went through and and look, you you and I and Tony Seaman, you know, it's hard to believe that three knuckleheads like us. Uh, we're, we're the uh, pioneers of recruiting camps. But when we started Top 205 back in 1987, um, we created something that I think was missing in, in the game. Um, so people went to Top 205. They went to the uh, MIAA, whatever it was called back there in Baltimore championships. And they went to the Empire State Games in New York. And, and that was kind of wrapped up your recruiting. So you had these three big events. And, and then you, you looked at all these kids. And then, so for us at Princeton, about 30% of those kids would have the grades that we could get them in, you know, or, or at least we could work on trying to get them in. And then, so what you did was you, you know, you, 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 you went, you scoured through that 30%. You found the ones that you liked at top 205 or, or in the Empire Games or, at the, you know, or the Maryland Championships. And you picked out about 20 of them. You knew at a place like Princeton, you, you pretty much were going to get 50% of those guys. So you got your class of 10 guys and, and you moved on. Um, here at Denver, it's really interesting. Obviously, um, academically, we, I believe this is a great, great school, but it's not the admission standards of a Princeton. And so... Um, we get about 30%. We look at that same 30% now, there's more kids playing, but it's 30% of the kids who are willing to, you know, be able to point on a map where Colorado is, you know? And so we take those kids and, and we'll shoot for the moon once in a while, um, you know, with a Baltimore kid or, or a Long Island kid or, you know, but we know our, our chances are a little less there, but we we now we're down to thirty percent of of that group that we see in the summer, and uh, we're looking for you know twelve or thirteen kids a year, and but those are the differences in in your in what you start with, but the but the real the real bottom line is is and Matt Brown, my associate head coach here, you know he says it best. He goes, we only want guys that want to be pioneers. You know we don't want to be a second choice of anybody, and and so we might pass up a a better kid, a better player, um, you know, then, and, and take a kid who really wants to be here. I was, uh, you know, I'm friendly with Ty Zanders and I really respect what Ty does. So I, you know, I told him last year, I said, we, we lovingly refer to our team as the non Ty Zanders, you know, that none of, very few of our kids are ranked in the top 10 of, of those guys or the top 50. And we get, a, we get a few and, uh, as you know, we we've been we originally were calling our recruiting here the three C's, you know, California, Colorado, and Canada, and now the a lot of the California kids fly over us on their way to on their way to New York and North Carolina. But um, 
so we, we have to we have to stay flexible. We're now doing better, like in the South, in Georgia and, and Florida, and some of those places. And we just got to keep banging it out to get the best from different areas and and make sure, you know, that there are kind of people. Uh, maybe we you know we feel like there's only a few programs in the country that really develop players. And we feel like we're one of those. So we're not afraid to take a kid who might be, uh, you know, not in that top 50 or 100. But we, we know he's our kind of guy. We know he, he'll work hard. And we know with our coaching style that he'll, he'll improve as the years go on. So now you're recruiting, you're recruiting high school kids. Now they throw the transfer portal into the play. And right now, college football, you know, they're, they're every – all these programs are looking for immediate help in certain areas. And they talk about player value. And this year you had a group of kids that had graduated from an Ivy league school. And there had to be a reason for the, for player value, what they were going to get out of leaving an I graduating from an Ivy league school and, and coming to Denver. What was the value that you guys supplied them? That was very interesting. And, you know, uh, um, the first two, Jackson Morrow and Lucas Kotler, were um, graduated from Yale with, you know, really high grades and in, in, um, in economics because Yale and Princeton don't have, you know, don't have a business major per se. So they both had jobs on, you know, one on Wall Street, and one out in L.A. And uh, and so. You know, at first, when the whole thing went down, when everybody was given that, that extra year of eligibility, Jackson led the battle at Yale to try to get Yale to, to uh, and the whole Ivy League to, to write over that rule they have where you can only play, you can't play as a grad student in the Ivy League, and you can only play five, uh, four years. So that didn't work. It hit a dead end. And so our take here at Denver was that uh, that they were going to look. The next look for a lot of those Ivy League kids was uh, was for an MBA. Well, in the most places, MBAs take two years, and in a lot of places, they won't take MBAs that are 22, 21 years old because they don't have any work experience. So, what we have here at Denver is a one year um, a one year finance master's degree, and I'm so proud of our people here. Our dean of our business school. Our admissions director of our business school got on got on a Zoom call not only with the, the boys and their families, but with their with the bosses who had hired them, and were willing to hold their job placement till this coming summer, till this past summer, so that they could play one more year of lacrosse. And our 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 dean and our people presented this program again not only to the families but to these these men that are running mega organizations, as you can imagine. And so they were so impressed with this one-year master's program that we have in finance and their, their words to, you know, to Lucas and Jackson was this will prepare you more for your job that you're about to start than going for an MBA somewhere and wasting another two years. And, and especially coming out of a place that didn't have, a real business school for undergrads. And so, um, so it, a lot came into play, obviously, uh, you know, with Michael, uh, with Jackson, I'm sorry, I coached, I coached his dad, Mike at, at my, my years at Hopkins. 
He coached with me one year at, at Princeton. Uh, you know, we've been friends ever since. And uh, uh, he lives across the street, interestingly enough, in Baltimore from Justin Tortolani. And so one thing led to another. Um, you know, I called Jackson and we talked about it. They both got calls from a lot of coaches, but we were just really lucky. And then the other thing that happened was Jackson and Lucas really wanted to play a st- you know, they wanted to play, you know, they wanted to come into a place that, that they could, they could fit in uh, both culturally and, and on the field. And, and Jackson couldn't have been in a better spot to fit into Matt Brown's offense, playing the X spot. And Lucas was a big, strong midi who, who we can, anybody can always use a big, strong midi. And then finally, I, you know, and then um, finally the, the thing that swung really was important to me was I know Andy Shea, and this guy is one hell of a coach and one hell of a man, and he runs a program. Look what he's done at that with that Yale program and won a national championship with these guys. And Andy, uh, you know, I'm so supportive of him, and Andy supported us in this thing. And, and so it all kind of came together. And so I think the, the value that the players got out of it um, was an educational one. Uh, I think they got to meet – they, they, those two guys, and then when T.D. Erland came to us in, in, in March or April, whenever that was, you know, they lived with uh, Danny Logan, Ethan Walker, Colin Squires, and Kyle Smith. So the seven of these guys packed into like a four-person, four-bedroom house, and, and the way they got along was so, uh, it was so, you know, it just was so smooth. They were such great guys, and uh, and it, it just couldn't have worked out better. You know, from an outsider who watches your team as, as often as I do, it just seemed like all the pieces fit together and there was no, you know, there's, there's an opportunity for jealousy from guys that maybe lose their time, but it just seemed like your team accepted those kids and uh, those kids accepted the team. No doubt about it. And I think that the, the, the best example of that is Alex Stathakis and Brett Bose, our two face-off men. Brett, as a freshman three years ago, was the Ivy League freshman of the year. Stath was the Ivy League, uh, you know, uh, rookie of the year. I met with with Brett. Stath was Ivy League rookie. I mean, not Ivy League. I'm sorry, uh, Big East um, rookie of the year. And 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 all of a sudden, TD Erling comes in, and the the way those guys gelled, the way the three of them gelled, I I you know. The only thing I could have done, and I did it at the end, you know, is screw screw these guys up. And and so, uh, you know, we didn't go as far as we wanted to. And credit to Charlie Toomey and Mark Van and, and their staff uh, and Matty Twan um, in that in the in the playoff game. But uh, it was still such a great experience in a year that had a dark cloud over it for everybody. That's it's pretty well said. Now, in the old days, we used to say RDR, recruit, develop, and retain. The retaining part seems to get more difficult now because when guys don't play right away, they leave. How do you handle that? Well, uh, you know, two, two answers to that. Number one is when on March the 12th of, of 2020, when this whole thing came down, on the 13th, I had 12 seniors walk into me and say, Coach, we don't know what we're going to be able to do. I'm sorry, it was the 14th, because that's when the NCAA came down and gave everybody the fifth year. 
And the 12 of them came into my office and said, we, we talked, we don't know what we're going to do yet as far as coming back, but we will never go play for another team. And, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I still, I still feel like that was a statement that, um, that didn't need to be made because there was a lot of guys who had a lot of options in that group. And, and it meant so much, meant so much to me. Um, as far as the, the, the normal procedure goes, um, you know, I, I've had a rule ever since I've been coaching. I, I will not, I will not cut somebody I recruit other than if he screws up in school, screws up socially, right. Or, or just, you know, is being a real detriment to the team, which most of them are not. And so, um, we've had, we haven't had guys say, uh, I want to transfer out, not one, unless, unless it's been a situation where I've had to say to them, listen, it's, it's time to go. You know, uh, we've given you too many chances and, and it's, it's time to go. You need to go learn how to study. You need to go, you know, learn how to act. You need to, to look better. You need to, you know, whatever that might be. Um, but, uh, so I think it's difficult. I think you got to be a little careful of um, taking too many of that uh, of transfers in. That, as you mentioned earlier, the fifth year thing, this portal thing is uh, it's going to move on for. I don't think it'll ever be as big as last year. Although we are seeing some teams that are bringing in nine, ten, eleven, fifty-year guys from other schools. Um, you know, I, I, I think you got to be really, really careful and, and make sure that if you do do that, which I think is perfectly fine, given these kids another up another year opportunity, you better make sure that they're not going to uh, they're not going to mess up with your culture. If your culture is important to you, because you work so hard on developing culture from the time they walk in the door as freshmen to the time, as you said earlier, uh, either I go to their grave or, or they forget about me, you know, where they're still thanking you. Um, culture is so important that you got to make sure you're not bringing anybody in that, that can affect that because one bad apple or one guy rowing the other way and, and you've got, you got a mess on your hands, especially with rosters upwards of 60 people. So, and that gets me to my next question or point. These two words were never said when you started coaching at Levittown High School. Roster management. It's become <laughs> such a large part of the game. Well, it, it was said when I was at Levittown, but roster management then meant taking some baseball player who didn't know what ended a lacrosse stick <laughs> to you and, and putting them on your team because you needed to have 20 guys to for your AD to say it was okay to play, you know? So, uh, but you're right, Dave, it's, it's changed so much. And, and I think, I think it goes back to your last question. It's, it's about culture. It's about everybody knowing their role and accepting their role. If I've, if I've done anything good in, as coaching lacrosse, it is that I was a bad lacrosse player. And so with that in mind, I remember going into Jack Emmer's office, Chuck Winter's office and saying to them and, you know, being upset or saying to them, I couldn't help the team. Why, you know, how do I play more, whatever it is. And both of them giving me answers that I carried forth to me uh, with me for, you know, 41, this is my 41st year of college coaching plus seven lacrosse uh, high school. And, and I've carried it every year. And I say to those kids, first of all, you're not talking to an all American here. You're talking to a backup player, you know, that, uh, 
that understands your plight when you sit on that couch and are upset that you're not playing. But selling, selling them on the culture of the team, selling them on the fact that you, 10 years from now, your teammates won't remember who played how many minutes in what game. What they'll remember is who were the great teammates. Who were the guys that supported them on the sideline? Who were the guys on the scout team? I praise our scout team every day because of what they do to get the first guys ready. You know, I remember some year, a few years back, I went up to Cortland for a reunion. I think it was our 45th reunion of our national championship team uh, in, from 1973. And one of my buddies, you know, you know what it's like. Old guys get together. They, 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 assume the roles of what they were when they were 18, 19, 20 years old. So, you, you know, it's uh, so one of my buddies from back then says, ah, oh, because you were so awesome. I remember those two goals you scored in the national championship game against Washington college. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, you're right. Weren't they really cool? I didn't score any goals in that game. You know, I was lucky to get on the field, but as long as he thought I did, that meant that he thought I was a good teammate. And and that's and that's the most important part of this. So, roster management. Uh, we try to play more guys here than than a lot of places. Um, sometimes it's dictated. You can play. You can win a Division One game with 15 guys, and you can win one with 30 guys. It just it just depends on your approach and how. As we say to our guys here, if you can play, you will play. And so, um, it's hard. You got to put your arm around guys. You've got to you got to tell them you love them. You got to express how important it is to you know you, they are to your team, and uh, you know you just you just got to hope like heck that that you, you know you're not turning too many off. Every once in a while, you have a guy come in and quit, say he's lost his passion for it. You just gotta you just gotta remind him of of the contributions he made while he was here, and hope that as he moves on, he. Uh, um, you know, he, he looks back as, as a, as a positive memory. I'm going to go back a little bit and talk about the style of play and everything like that. Back when you started at Princeton, uh, I can remember playing against you at Loyola. We used to average 35 to 38 half field possessions a game. And then when we played Princeton, we'd get 28 and we'd usually get three to five extra men. We'd get zero. And you guys play, you know, if you had a bad quarter, you know, you'd get outscored two to zero. Nowadays, the bad quarters are four to one and five to one. With the shot clock, there are a lot more possessions. How do you factor that into what you do with Denver now? Well, it's interesting, I, you know, and, and, you know, you were better at this than, than anybody is, is. And the first thing that great coaches say is we, we can't. Uh, I do. I do one speech that's called uh, "Square Peg in a Round Hole." You can't coach the same way every year, you know. And and look, there's lots of guys out there who remember back when we when we won our first championship in 1992, and uh, they talk about the championship game against Syracuse where we went up seven to one and then tried to hold on for dear life and held the ball for two and three minutes at a time and all that stuff. And that was all true. That was all true. But what I used to say is, hey, we won. And then we got to the mid-90s, and we were, as I said earlier, we were scoring 18. And, you know, we, we, were okay, we were okay. And I was taking those three guys out at halftime. Um, you know, I think the key is to make sure that 
you know enough to play a different a different style. And now the shot clock has been mandated. And even this year, I think it's going to be even better because they've shortened the reset time from 80 to 60 seconds. So I think it's going to be even faster with more shots. Um, but I, I, I also, the, the, the difference is, I'm not a real believer in this, uh, in this free play thing. You know, I, I believe that that can help develop young people in an individual lesson, uh, in an individual way. But I think, you know, I, I tell these young coaches, say, well, we, you know, you should just let them play and make their decisions and learn from their mistakes. And I go, yeah, well, you know, that also means that they don't need a coach. And so um, I think coaching is a really important profession. And, and I think that we've got to do our job to make sure that we're doing our best to coach our young men in the best way that's for that team to be successful. So, you know, sometimes that may mean even in the fast world of shot clock and, and all the 10 man rides and all that stuff, um, you know, there's times to say, look, 15 seconds is a long time. Let's, let's make sure we set this thing up and, and, and get the best shot, not the first shot. And, and so, but I do think it, it's, it's made the game better. I think it's made it faster. We've all had to adjust. But still, and we just started our practices yesterday, we're still teaching the basic concepts of getting in the hole, not, not having many fouls, you know, uh, making sure it's a good possession. You know, one of the things, you know, it's, it's, as I said before about the 30-year thing and things coming back around, you and I used to go crazy playing against Tony Seaman in 1989 with the 10-man ride. Some of these young coaches think that they invented the 10-man ride in 2020. You know, and so and zone defenses and all that stuff, you know, it's it's you gotta you gotta adjust and you gotta you gotta figure out what your players can do and can't do. I think the flo- the mistake a lot of young coaches make is that they 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 say, Okay, well we're this kind of team, you know, where if we play fast, well that's good, but if your players are slow and they can't throw and catch, you're gonna be playing fast into the hands of the other team. You know, so or we, we play tough. Well, young people think tough means fouling or late hitting or stick, you know, stick checking. That's not what tough is. Your teams were always the toughest teams out there. And that meant grit, hard, hard work, supporting each other. Yeah, maybe get hitting somebody once in a while, but it was it was a mental toughness, not a not a stick toughness. So I think all those things got to come into play with the with the new speed of the game and the more shots taken. And uh, you, you still see as you get toward the end, uh, this, you know, and get to the playoffs, the, the scores go down a little bit because, you know, it, the games become more important. I thought one of the – watching you play last year at Denver is in the Loyola game, you, you just didn't have a great first half. And to Loyola's credit, they kind of took the play to you and hung in there and everything. And you came out and 10 manned and just picked up the pace all over the field, which would have been the total opposite of what had happened years and years ago. And to me, that shows that, that no matter where you are, you're going to do the things that take to get your team on, t- on to try to get your team to play the way that you wanted to do. And I thought that was really impressive back then. Well, and, and you know, Dave, we all steal from each other, right? Early in the year, you know, we had a COVID year last year, budgets were tight. 
And so we made the uh, really smart decision to play Duke on a Friday and Carolina on a Sunday <laughs> in, the same, in, in the same weekend down in North Carolina. So we have a great game with Duke for the third year in a row. We're ahead of them going into the fourth quarter, and we end up losing the game. Uh, or the third out of four years, they beat us pretty well here two years ago. And, and now we got to play Carolina two days later. So what does this genius do? He has a hard practice on the day in between. And now we play Carolina on, on Sunday, and uh, they 10-man us to death. You know, it, it ended up 24-13, but that was only out of the goodness of Joe Bresci's heart to, to you know, take some guys out and let us get the 13. But we walked off that field. You know, they, as they say, you learn more from losing than you do from winning. We walked off that field, and Matt Brown looks at me and goes, we got a 10-man. So from that point on, we just 10-man. And I had I had ten man in my life. I didn't know what a ten man was, and and so we did it, and it was successful for the most part. And then as the year went on, you know, the, the coaches started catching on to that, and and so we kind of got away from it again. And then, but that was out of necessity. But had we not had that in the bank, and again, credit to, to those Loyola young men, they played a great game that day, and Charlie and the staff coached a great game, but at least we had something in the bank to, to give us a, a chance. And as we all know, we had a chance with 0.5 seconds left and, and there go, we made a great save. Hey everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another great episode of Coach Cottle's Corner. If you need us, you know where to find us. Info at laxallstars.com or laxallstars on social media. 